Today we're going to talk about conflict and David's complete inability to deal with it in his own family and with the people he was meant to command. So how are you with conflict? How is your heart when people around you don't do what they should? When those who work for you, if that's the position that you're in, aren't doing their job? Uh, When as a parent, your children And I'm sure there aren't any like this in Jubilee. But when your children don't do what they're told or whatever situation applies to you, when it comes to conflict, do you stand up and take responsibility? Do you speak up for what is right and bring clarity and discipline where it's needed? Or do you bury your head in the sand and hope it goes away or even run away? Because David did both of those things. He buried his head in his sand, in the sand, and ran away. See, David was a dysfunctional leader after God's own heart. He was the giant slayer who fought lions and bears to protect his father's sheep, who won so many battles against Israel's enemies, but had no ability to deal with what was going on in his own house and family. He hated this kind of conflict. He hated personal conflict. Anybody else feel like that today? Not that anybody particularly likes conflict, although some people relish it and they create interpersonal chaos wherever they go. But that, quite honestly, takes some kind of personality disorder or some traits of one anyway. So the story this week centers around David's son, Absalom, and he's introduced to us in 2 Samuel 13. But I want to start uh, in chapter 15 because that's where we see the outcome of David's inability to deal with his sons. Chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. See, Absalom tries to overthrow David's reign, claiming that his father is completely unqualified to do the job. So let's just read verses 1 to 6 of 2 Samuel 15, first of all. So in the course of time, David provided, sorry, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone would come with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him and say, hey, uh, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And then Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice and so stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So how did it get to this place? How did it get so that one of the son's kings was out to pull his father off the throne? Well, Absalom's name means father of peace. And 
as you know, names are often significant in the Bible. So it suggests uh, something about his character that he was a man who was a lover of peace. He was the kind of man who needed to see things resolved. He was a person who wanted justice done so that there could be peace. And guys, a great injustice had been done in the family, which David never dealt with, which forced Absalom to take matters into his own hands. So let me just tell you the story. It's set out in some detail between chapters 13 and 18, but I'm just going to try and summarize it for you because it's quite a lot of detail there. So in chapter 13, the crown prince, it says Amnon, he was called, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar, the daughter of Makar, one of David's six wives, who was also Absalom's sister. And I say fell in love, but actually it was an obsessive infatuation fueled by lust, in which Amnon forced himself upon his sister, violently raping her. That was in chapter 13. It's like father, like son, it seems, and one of the consequences of David's sin. And when David heard about what had happened to his daughter, he was furious, but did absolutely nothing about it, which turned out to be a pattern throughout his life when it came to his family. Now, Absalom was devastated by what had happened to his sister, and he took immediate steps to protect and care for her, taking her into his home, and she lived with him until the day she died. As each day passed without any closure on this incident, Absalom's anger grew until that was what made him decide to take matters into his own hands. He had Amnon murdered in a scheme in which he manipulated his father to create the opportunity for murder very much like David did, actually, with Bathsheba's husband, if you remember. So history repeats itself. And after this, Absalom understandably flees the country to save his own life. And he hid from his father for around three years until through a series of complex circumstances, he managed to get back into his dad's palace where, again, David fails to bring justice, this time for his murdered son, so that Absalom gets away with it and suffers no punishment at all. It's quite unbelievable. But you see, Amnon's death resolved nothing for Absalom. Revenge never does. He just couldn't forgive his father, you see, for not giving Tamar the justice she deserved. And so full of bitterness, that's when he started his campaign to undermine David and his authority. So for four long years... He stood at the entrance of his father's courtroom as people would come to him for judgment in their various affairs. And as people passed by, he would call out to them saying effectively, don't bother, you won't get any justice here. But you know, if I was king, if I was king, you'd get some justice. You wait and see. And through this passage, through this, the passage says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it's just An incredibly shocking story, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine one of your kids undermining you like that in your own house for four years without saying anything to them? 
not even a little challenge like, hey, I've heard that we've got a problem. Shall we talk? And yet that's exactly what David did. He ignored it. And then things got a whole lot worse because finally Absalom gathered enough support to proclaim himself king of Israel. And you think, well, surely now David's going to confront him. He's staging a coup. He's usurping the the throne. You remember the throne that was promised to him by God. But no, instead, David did what he should never have done. He left the palace. He left the palace, the place of God's appointment, and ran from the challenge, ordering his soldiers not to harm Absalom. So let's return to chapter 15 and the next part of this sorry tale, which is 2 Samuel 15, 13 to 16. And it says that a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials and who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So the king set out with his entire household following him. But he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace, which wasn't a good idea because instead of giving the customary inauguration speech, Absalom pitched a tent on the roof of the palace and, I say it delicately, went in to his father's concubines as all Israel watched. I mean, it's horrible. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Why? Well, as a side note, it was in the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy from chapter 12. It was another consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. But more blatantly, he was taking revenge on his father for not giving justice to Tamar because of Amnon. He was sending a big, loud public message to his dad saying, how does it feel when someone violates the girls that you care about and you're powerless to help them? In other words, David's inaction was, has not avoided conflict, has just moved it. You know, it, it can't stay hidden. It, it bursts out and it makes a mess all over everyone. And that's why you can't keep burying your head in the sand when it comes to personal conflict. Because in the end, something will either need resolving so that there can be peace, or one of the parties has to leave the situation accepting that it can't be resolved. But it wasn't for David to leave. God never told him to do that. He should have sorted things out. It was his kingly duty to bring justice, government and peace. But this was David's problem. It was this, this paralyzing fear of conflict. And you've only got to look around the family because, you see, Absalom wasn't the king's only failure. David never confronted any of his sons, which meant that two of them attempted to usurp the throne and, and another one raped his daughter. In fact, the king's dysfunction went beyond his family. Joab, commander of David's armies, head of the mighty men, murdered one of Israel's best generals and got away with it because David couldn't confront him either. Joab faced no punishment, no consequences for his crime. That's in 2 Samuel 3.27. 
You see, David was a serial conflict avoider to such an extent that when Solomon finally becomes king after him, David passes on to him a hit list of all the people that he didn't have the guts to deal with, ordering Solomon to do it for him. That's tragic, isn't it? It was a generational thing that just got handed on to the next person in line. Tragic. So why? And that's what I want to really talk about today. Why was David so afraid of conflict? What was the reason behind David's fear of conflict and dysfunction? Why was it that he had the courage to kill giants and fight enemies and yet not confront his own men? Why would a man after God's heart, a man trained in the field, slaying wild animals uh, animals that attacked his sheep, never discipline his sons? And the passage doesn't say. (laughs) It, It just records the facts as they are laid out. And so I think we have to look back to David's formative years as a young soldier serving an abusive king for an answer. And I have to give credit to Chris Fallerton here uh, for his insight on this in his book, Healing Rain. That's really helped me. You see, it wasn't David's family that harmed him. But it was when Saul took him into the palace where he raised him with his son, Jonathan. If you remember, Saul became jealous of David and began to abuse him. And that went on for 14 years, 14 years of abuse in his formative years. Saul was threatened by him, this young boy, and tried to kill him. Now, I don't know about your background, but these kinds of experiences leave their mark on us. Now, like many people in such a situation, David was damaged by this, and and it came out in how he behaved as a king. So it was just like a child who's raised by an overbearing an overbearing parent. <laughs> David reacts to Saul's abusive authority by going in the opposite extreme with his sons and daughters, uh, sons and soldiers. He says, I, "I'm determined not to be like Saul." <laughs> You might have heard people say, I'm never going to be like my dad. I'm never going to be like my mum. Ever heard that? But because of this, it created a a culture in which people were so rarely confronted. Conflict was avoided because he didn't want to be like Saul. I'll never be like Saul. So he never set the boundaries of discipline for those who needed it the most, his sons. And do you know David isn't the only one like this? Many people in positions of leadership, even parents, hate confrontation. It's not that they lack the courage to deal with it, because actually they can deal with their enemies. You know, if an enemy comes and threatens the family or the community, they can deal with that but not the nuanced skill of bringing correction and discipline to those who are closest to them. Hate it. Peace has a higher value than clarity. Keeping the peace in the present more important than shaping the future until it becomes keeping the peace at all costs, doesn't it? Until it doesn't. (laughs) Keeping the past... Peace at all costs until it doesn't. You see, this passive style of leadership 
or parenting, if you want to think about it like that, works for a while, but then there comes a certain point where what has been tolerated for so long can be tolerated no longer. And what happens then? Anger finally overcomes the fear of conflict. Anger. And there's an explosion. It gets messy. Full of pent-up rage and emotion, it all comes out, and the person in the wrong is no longer the son or daughter, brother, sister or friend, but an enemy. A threat who has to be eliminated. And as Chris Vallotton says in his book, the passive leader brings his warrior weapons to a family affair. I like that. I think that's very descriptive. Like the spear gets thrown at Jonathan and David before that, the worm finally turns and it's not pleasant. And this explosive kind of confrontation, by the way, doesn't resolve anything. It just abuses people and then we become the authority figure we always said that we'd never want to be. (laughs) Which then only serves to validate the previous misconception that confrontation never works and must be avoided at all costs. So the serial conflict avoider confronts even less which results in injustice increasing even more and a cycle of dysfunction the like of what we see in David's family. Can you see that? Can you relate? Can you relate to that? How is your heart right now when it comes to conflict? Even as I said the word conflict, maybe that raised something for you. An alarm bell went off. I don't like conflict. Maybe it's not David. Maybe it's Absalom for you. Maybe that's who you relate to better. See, Absalom wasn't right either and had his own version of conflict avoidance. It was passive aggressive behavior. You know, he never resolved anything. He should have dealt with David directly and told him from the start about his complaint. He should have laid out the injustice, taken it to David's court if necessary, in the presence of witnesses. Spoke up until he was heard. But instead, what did he do? He sulked. He schemed. He manipulated. And he resorted to taking matters into his own hands, even to committing murder. Which, by the way, didn't work. Even that didn't work. It didn't satisfy him because what he really wanted was for his dad to do the right thing and bring justice in the situation. That's what he wanted. And, do you know, I've really wondered about Absalom. Even about him standing outside his David's courthouse, standing outside where David was working. What was he doing there? Was it just a cry for help? Was it just a call for attention? Dad, I'm here. I'm trying to provoke something. I want you to talk to me, Dad. You know how differently things could have been if David had just taken the fatherly, never mind kingly initiative and made time and space to hear his son's complaint. Because 
We know our kids, don't we? We know when something's wrong, but David went into complete avoidance, burying his head in the sand, hoping it would go away. I remember once asking for advice about a particular stage of our own parenting. One of our children had become especially attention-seeking. Anybody? There's nobody in the room. The answer was given to to us, very sage advice, that attention-seeking behavior is usually because someone, especially a child, needs more attention. Have you tried that? We were asked. No, I didn't think about that. I hadn't. Because sometimes, you know, the answer is staring us right in the face. You know, there's a lot of bad press about Absalom and how he behaved. There's lots of books written on it. But the reality is that there would be no Absalom passive-aggressive without David's dysfunctional leadership. Without David's disorder, there wouldn't be an Absalom problem. Something to bear in mind when it comes to our own tendencies in handling conflict. So who do you relate to in the story? Who makes the most sense to you? Are you more David or Absalom or a bit of both? (laughs) I mean, obviously, I've had more time to think about it, but I recognize tendencies in myself in both. I kind of relate to both David and Absalom in some way when it comes to conflict. David, because I can be passive at times, a little too tolerant, which then means that I can overreact when I think I've finally had enough. It's something to do, I think, with my own wounds from the past, uh, where I've been dealt with by overbearing leaders. Somebody's come down too hard, uh, too, too quickly, and it's had an impact on me. But Absalom as well, because I don't always find it easy to be direct in challenging those who are over me, the people that lead me, that I'm accountable to. And that's a weakness, I think, that stems from my own insecurity about how I might be seen and a a, a slight people-pleasing tendency inside of me. Which are you? David, who tries to avoid conflict at all costs, ending up passive for most of the time until the switch is flipped. Or Absalom, who doesn't do conflict well either, but will make their feelings known by covert means, undermining the person who's upset you. Which one? Or something of both. See, either way is failing to deal with people properly in the area of relational conflict, which means that someone somewhere always loses out. Someone always loses out. It could be your work colleagues who never know where they stand with you. Or it could be in the church where people never really know what you think about anything. Or worse, with your children, if you're a parent. I remember somebody saying to me years ago that handling a five-year-old that you can still restrain is nothing like handling a 15-year-old 
So handle the five-year-old and the 15-year-old will turn out fine. It's true. They turned out good. Simplistic maybe, but it makes the point. Our children and those that we lead need us to bring loving discipline, clarity and guidance, setting clear boundaries so that it turns out well for them and for us. And and that alone should motivate us to get over our own fear of conflict, not just for their good, but for ours and for the sake of our community, the whole community. And as followers too, because we're all followers of someone, it's about getting over our fear of conflict in that relationship so that we're able to speak up when things are wrong or when things have gone wrong. I so appreciate it when people love me enough to tell me when I've messed up. It's actually one of the ways I introduce people to Jubilee Church. I say, look, one thing I can guarantee is that I'm going to mess up at some point. All I'm asking is that you give me the opportunity to try and sort things out with you. Because I'm human. Anybody realize that yet? (laughs) Alison's saying yes rather too loudly there. I really appreciate, I don't enjoy those Rob, I need to come and see you about things kind of comments, and I kind of dread those sort of meetings. But I also love the fact that I have the opportunity to have those conversations and sort things out with people. Because we are going to mess up sometimes. So how do I draw this to a close? I thought how I'd end is some kind of fantastic strategy, principles for handling conflict. That's where I was going with this. I even started writing all beginning with P. Things like take your time in conflict. Don't overreact. Make a plan. Choose your battles. Maintain dignity. These kind of things, and I'm sure that those things would be really helpful. But I think there's something else that God wants to do today. And that's because David's fear of conflict was nothing to do with his lack of strategy. He was a brilliant strategist, actually. It wasn't that. And how dare we try to teach him strategy? It was actually because of too much pain and the abuse that he suffered as a young man at the hands of Saul. He didn't need principles and strategies. He needed healing and wholeness. His heart was damaged by those experiences. And I think it's the same for us. (laughs) One of the reasons we hate conflict is because of our own pain and the damage that we have, that we live with, the wounds that we carry. You know, somebody could train you brilliantly in how to manage conflict, but you're never going to be able to cope with it really unless God does some healing on the inside. And you do know that we don't escape conflict by just burying our head in the sand. Usually things just get worse. Wherever there are people and community, there are going to be interpersonal conflicts from time to time. Okay? So we need to come to a place of understanding on this. We need to get healed. And some of you, I feel like even as I said the word conflict, you felt kind of watery inside, a bit watery. Turn to jelly on the inside. Oh no, does that mean I've got to deal with that? It's because you need to get healed. I don't mean that conflict then becomes easy. But I do mean that there is healing for you.
there's a kind of security that God wants to give you where it's not about the outcome of that discussion. It's about who you are as a child of God. (laughs) And I feel like some of us just need a fresh encounter with our Heavenly Father. He's the Father, the authority figure that you always wanted. You know, you always said, you know, I wish my dad was like that. Well, he is. <laughs> you ever compare your dad with other dads? Oh, it feels only like more like that. I wish he was more cool. That was the general thing. So, dad's not here, so he can't answer. Dad, I wish you were more cool, you know. Other dads are a bit cooler than you. My heavenly father is so cool. He is cool. We need a fresh encounter with him. And I think that's what the worship was about. It's like the father couldn't wait to come and be with us today. I just feel like God's setting us up. It's been setting us up, setting us up, whether you're at home or whether you're in the room, for an encounter with the father today. So who needs some healing? Just say, Lord, I actually, I need some healing today. I do. You're right, Rob. You've nailed me. I feel wobbly when we talk about this stuff. You need some healing. And God is able to give it. It's not about personality. It's about what's on the inside. It's who you are. It's about identity. So how is your heart with conflict? And I just simply want to ask you to partner with me on this because I can't tell you where your conflict issue comes from, but I know someone who can. It's called the Holy Spirit. And it's never good to try and work it all out with our heads and try and assess ourselves. It's good to have times of reflection and so on, but I believe that there's something that God wants to do today that's supernatural, where he's just going to show you that's where it comes from. So I, I just want to share this with you because I, I've this talk really comes out of something that God did in me. About a month ago, I was on retreat and God started speaking to me. We weren't even planning to do this talk in the series. But I said, I, I feel like we need to do this talk because God showed me something that I wanted to share with you. And uh, last month on retreat, he showed me some of my own wounds from bad experiences of the past. And I'm going to share them with you, partly because I, I just like being open with people. I want, I don't, I like to share stuff so that you see that we're all a work in progress. Okay. But also, I think it might help you to see how this works. When we, because I want you to just ask the Father to show you some of your wounds. Okay. And that's what I did. I just said, Lord, show me some of the wounds that I am bearing at the moment that means that I'm really frightened of conflict. Show me some of the wounds. And this is what he showed me. He showed me first that there was a wound of mistrust, which went right back a long time ago to a time of real betrayal, terrifying betrayal by another leader. Real betrayal. Wound of mistrust. He says, I want to heal that now. I've done all the forgiveness on that issue and so on, but I still needed some healing. I want to heal that. And secondly, he says there's a wound of cover-up with those that that lead me, so people that are over me. 
Why? He showed me it was because of a time that I felt exposed when an overseer should have protected me or stood with me. So that I'd become, I, I better just cover my heart just in case to protect myself. And then a wound is self-reliance. Who've ever thought of that as a wound? Self-reliance had become a wound for me because of a time I felt unprotected, not by a human being, but even by God. Anybody? Lord, why did you let that happen to me? Anybody? Anybody ever felt that? And so to protect myself, I started to rely on my own abilities to protect myself and not trust God anymore. And I hadn't realized that it had slipped in. It does. These things slip in from experiences that happen along the way. So there you go. Those are my wounds. What are yours? Let's just take some time. And whether you're at home or whether you're in the room, uh, I'm just going to take a moment just to do some ministry right now. Uh, So if you need some healing today, why don't you just stand with me? And even if you're at home, I know I can't see you, but God can see you. If nobody needs healing, then this isn't a message from God, and I've got it completely wrong. But I think there are some people here today that need some healing. So if you just need some healing, why don't you just stand up with me right now? We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. So all I want you to do is uh, just to... Invite the Holy Spirit to show you any wounds that you're carrying at the moment that make you afraid of conflict. And I don't just mean I don't like conflict. Nobody does. But actually there's that feeling of I I literally turn to water on the inside when conflict happens. I'm so afraid of conflict. It's like a paralyzing fear. And just say, Holy Spirit, just pray this after me. Holy Spirit, come and search my heart. And come and bring healing to me. Father, will you please show me by the Spirit the wounds that I'm carrying so that you can heal them. In Jesus' name. Okay, we're just going to wait for a moment in God's presence and just don't think about it too much. There just may be a word that comes up or two words or, and just take a note of those words. You might want to write it down or type it into your phone. We're, we're just going to take a few minutes for that. Just write down those words. So for me, it was that word mistrust, cover up, self-reliance. It's going to leave you for a moment. Holy Spirit, just come and show us the wounds that we are carrying right now. Okay, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit for something else right now. So he's shown you these wounds. Now take, bring each one before him because he was wounded. For our transgressions. So when we bring wounds to him. He is well able to bring healing to them. But just ask him. So Lord where did I get that wound from? Don't think what you think it is. Ask him what he says it is. 
Now, Lord, show me where I got that wound from. It might surprise you. It might not be where you think it is. Oh, okay, it goes back further than that. Thank you, Lord. Now I want you to bring that situation, that moment that God's revealed to you where it came from, and just bring it to the cross. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'll bring that situation to the cross and lay it at your feet. That, that abuse, that moment, that trauma, whatever it is, Lord, I bring it to you. Father, will you please take that from me? Because, Lord, I want to walk free and I want to be healed. Sometimes it helps uh, if there is a situation that you're struggling with, just to hold, imagine that you're holding it in your hand and say, Lord, will you take it from me, please? Because sometimes it's hard to give it up. Sometimes it's hard to just give it up. We don't even have the strength to lift our hand any higher. To say, Lord, please, will you take that from me now? Thank you, Jesus. And you'll just feel your hand go light <laughs> as it just gets taken from you. There you go. See, it's happening all around the room right now. It's just some burdens being lifted. The burden of that responsibility, the burden of that trauma, the burden of what went wrong. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I just check, a quick check. Lord, is there anybody I need to forgive? That's always part of this. It's quite often attached to these issues. Lord, is there anyone I need to forgive? Just do the forgiveness. Trust him with that. Say, Lord, I forgive so-and-so. I forgive them for not doing that, for doing that. Thank you, Jesus. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now put your hand on your heart, especially the hand that had that weight, and just put it on your heart. <clears throat> Or if it was both hands because there were so many weights. <laughs> Just put your hand on your heart right now and say, Lord, I now receive healing in Jesus' name. I now receive healing in Jesus' name. Heal my heart. Heal my heart so I don't feel so exposed anymore. Heal my heart so I don't feel so vulnerable anymore. Heal my heart so I'm not afraid of getting hurt again. Heal my heart, Lord, and make me soft in my heart. Now, that's the opposite of what you think because you've defended yourself and protected yourself. But actually, Jesus gives us a new heart that's made of flesh and it's soft. So, Lord, I ask you for a new heart that's soft and not hard. Soften my heart, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.